On Sunday mornings, what we've been doing uh, here as of late, uh, really since uh, Thanksgiving Sunday, we've been reflecting on Sundays on Isaiah's prophecy that comes to us um, from the end of Isaiah 52 all the way through Isaiah 53. And it's a song about the promised servant of the Lord, um, Jesus. And as a song, we've, been, we've said this each week, it has five distinct stanzas in this song. And so we've been reflecting on one stanza each week. And so far, we've uh, reflected on Christmas and the puzzling servant. And then we talked about Christmas and the upside down servant. And as uh, I was giving Ashley the title for this week, uh, she's like, oh, there's a theme, isn't there? Um, yes, there is a theme. Uh, so. Christmas and the Puzzling Servant, <laughs> Christmas and the Upside Down, sorry, Ashley, uh, called you out. Um, and then this third stanza that we're going to look at this morning, which is Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, uh, and we're going to talk about Christmas and the Sacrificial Servant. Uh, so let me go ahead and read these verses for us. They're printed in your bulletin, or if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can do that. Um, I'll read these for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll talk about this sacrificial servant. So Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 4, this is God's word. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, it's right that we would come before you and ask uh, for your help. For your help in order that we might see, in order that we might understand, in order that we might believe. Uh, And Father, we we confess that um, as we gather together, uh, we gather together as one body. Um, And yet, uh, there are some of us this morning who are discouraged. Um, There are those of us uh, who are this time of year is simply a difficult time of year for them. Um, There are those of us who gather who are are excited and um, anxious to be with your people again. Uh, There are those of us who need refreshment. There are those of us who realize that we are struggling hard with doubts and skepticism about the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel. There are those of us who come and feel as though we've never walked as closely with you as we are right now. Um, And yet at the end of it all, we do confess that we are one body. And and though the symptoms differ in our lives, uh, we confess that we are all the same. And we need you to remind us this morning that all of us, far more broken, sinful, depraved and corrupt uh, than we could have really ever imagined about ourselves. And so together, 
we confess that we need to be reminded of the good news. The good news of Jesus, the good news of the Christmas story, the good news of our sacrificial servants, so that we can be reminded that though we are far more broken than we could imagine, we are also, because of Him and His work, more loved and more accepted, more delighted in than we could have ever dared to dream was possible. And Father, we pray that we would hear this good news this morning and that it would change us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So here's what I want us to do this morning. As we look at these three verses in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 through 6, I want, I want you to be able to process through the meaning of these verses for you personally. Um, and, and the reason is this, uh, it's pretty simple, to understand and believe the good news of, the, of Christmas's sacrificial servant, um, for you to believe that personally, it has the power to change everything about your life. It, it has the power to reshape who you are. Um, and, um, and so what I want you to do up front is I want you to imagine something. Um, and for some of us, this may, may hit close to home, but I, I want you to imagine that one evening um, you're at, at home and you're watching TV uh, one night and uh, during a commercial break, there's that familiar 30-second uh, spot uh, telling you about the news that's coming, about the 10 o'clock news. And, um, and I want you to imagine the reporter saying something like, you know, breaking news, a cure for liver cancer has been found. Details at 10. Now, what if you had an acquaintance at work that you knew had recently been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer? Um, I'm sure you would reflect for a moment about what great news that must be for him or her. You know, um, and be excited for them. Um, but what if it wasn't an acquaintance? What if it was your best friend? Or what if it was your brother or your sister who had liver cancer? All of a sudden, that news would feel so much bigger to you. Right? Um, it would hit so much closer to home. Now it wasn't just somebody else's relief. It was your relief too. But what if it was you? Right? I mean, what if six months ago you sat in a doctor's office and the doctor told you the news that you had liver cancer? And for the last six months, you wept at the prospect of not growing old with your spouse, of not getting to see your kids graduate college. Maybe over the course of the, se- the past six months, you depleted so many financial resources just so that you could hang on for a little while longer. Maybe for the last six months, you saw your hair fall out from the chemo. And when you looked into the mirror and you saw your shrunken body, 
You look like a sh- just a shell of what you used to have been, of your former self. See, I'm willing to bet if it was you and you heard that news, I bet you would weep for joy. I, I bet you would call someone. Your parents, your spouse, your friends, other patients you met in treatment. I bet you would stay up to hear the news at 10 o'clock. I bet you would immediately begin thinking about how this news changes everything. How it's going to reshape your life from this point forward. See, I want you to hear the good news of this sacrificial servant like that. Because to hear this news personally, it's so much bigger than a cure for cancer. This news embraced personally, it has the power to shape and change everything about your life in far deeper and more profound ways. The promised sacrificial servant came and he came to take your place. He came to take your disease, to set you free, to give you peace, to heal your brokenness. News like that has the power to change everything. So I want us to talk about three things about this, uh, about Christmas and sacrificial servants. So first, let's talk about um, admitting our predicament. And then second, I want us to talk about understanding the divine substitute. And then third, we need to think about what it means to live out our gospel freedom. Uh, So admitting our predicament, understanding the divine substitute, and living out our gospel freedom. So first, admitting our human predicament. Just three verses that we read this morning. And in those three verses, no less than 11 times, Isaiah used personal pronouns. We, us, are. He's making a point. To know this good news that changes everything, you have to admit your predicament personally. See, he knows our hearts recoil at the idea of admitting our predicament, of admitting our personal brokenness uh, and sin. A few years ago, some psychologists at the University of Virginia and Harvard got together and they conducted um, uh, an interesting study. Uh, They put college students in this plain, unadorned room uh, with no cell phones, and no reading material, and no writing implements, nothing. It was just them in a room seated at a table. And, uh, and they were told to go into this room and just sit there and be still with their thoughts for 6 to 15 minutes. Afterwards, the overwhelming majority said that the experience was extremely difficult and unenjoyable. Just six to 15 minutes of silence. But you know, we say, oh, that's ADD college students addicted to their cell phones and social media and stuff. So they expanded the parameters to include ages 18 to 77 from a variety of different races, income levels, genders, frequency of social media use, and all of that. The feedback was exactly the same. 
irregardless of age, income, even frequency of social media use. We do not like quiet, and we do not like the silence. There is something about it that disturbs us. So they up the ante again, okay? Each participant, when they went into this room, was given a choice to either sit alone in a quiet room, or they could push a simple button on the table in front of them that would administer an uncomfortable electrical shock to them. And 46%, almost half of them, chose rather than sitting quiet and being still in silence, to shock them, to give themselves an electrical shock. Right? So, the point is, (laughs) we would rather be in pain than in silence for 15 minutes. So, my question is, what is it that's so disturbing and uncomfortable and terrifying about the silence to us. Um, I think it's pretty simple. Um, in the silence, we can't numb ourselves. And we can't drown out a very haunting realization of our human predicament. Because in the silence, we're forced to reckon with who we are. And we're forced to reckon with the fact that we are broken. In the silence, we come to realize that we are just shadows of the people we want to be, much less the people we know we were meant to be. Our guilt and our shame and our grief and our sorrow and our transgressions and our iniquities, they can't be kept at bay in the silence. Years ago, um, my wife Jennifer and I we, we went to an open mic night at a coffee house where local musicians were, were going to be performing. And so, and I remember the, the night, I mean, this is years ago, 15 years ago or something. And I remember it being just okay, but there was this one guy in the room that was waiting his turn. And we stayed just to see this guy. We didn't know who he was. We'd never heard of him before. We'd never listened to him sing or anything like that. He just looked so cool. I mean, he was kind of grungy and edgy and uh, had like this hoodie sweatshirt on, long hair, you know. We're like, this guy's got to be awesome. We got to stick around for this guy. And so when it was his turn, grabbed his guitar by the neck of the guitar and, you know, confidently swaggered up to the, the stage and he situated his bar stool and adjusted the mic and all that kind of stuff. And Oh my, he was nailing it, man. I mean, the anticipation was just awesome. But then he did something that nobody else had done that that evening. Um, This is what he did. He took out an MP3 player, um, or maybe it was a CD player back then, I don't know. Uh, And he put in these earphones, and he hit play, slid it into his little pocket of his hoodie, um, and he started to play with, you know, the music that he was hearing. Okay, Um, and then uh, and then it was awesome, you know. It was Nirvana or Pearl Jam or something like that, and it was he was he was nailing it. Um, But eventually, he started to sing, and it was the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) It was awful. It was horrific. I felt embarrassed for the guy. It was one of those situations like I feel embarrassed that I'm in this room while this is happening. Um, and it's not even me on stage. It was horrible. 
And I, he was feeling it, his eyes were closed, which was great because everybody in the room looked at each other like, are we hearing the same thing you're hearing? It was terrible. And so I thought about it later and I realized, you know, I don't have any musical training. Um, but if you give me some earphones and about three minutes, I'm pretty sure I missed my calling to be on tour with you too. Um, you know why? Because I can't hear myself sing when I have the earphones in. And ignorance is bliss. Dan Allender once wrote that it's in our nature to prefer the illusion because we have a deep need to be buffered from reality. George Martin, uh, author of Game of Thrones books, uh, first book he wrote this. Most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it. Eleven times in three verses, Isaiah hits us with personal pronouns. Our transgressions, our iniquities, we all like sheep have gone astray. The silence haunts us and terrifies us because in the silence we are brought face to face with reality, with the hard truth of our human predicament. Right In the silence, we realize how deeply flawed we really are. And, and how the sum of our lives is truly and really offensive to a holy God. Why do we shift the blame of our brokenness to others? Or to what we consider the unfair circumstances that have come into our lives? Why are we so quick to become defensive? Or so terrified of criticism. Sometimes we chase the illusion of freedom in deeper and deeper rebellion in our lives. Other times we keep the silence at bay and we buffer ourselves from reality with addictions to substances and entertainments and to relationships and to any number of distractions. And sometimes we even fill up our lives with the busyness of religion, religion, religious activity and morality and doing good because we are just so desperate to prove to ourselves that we're okay. But even all of that, even the religious activity, it is just a thin veneer that's keeping us from admitting our human predicament. I'm willing to bet that more than a few of you realize that it is terrifying to have to admit how broken and corrupt you really are. But I think if you're honest and you think about it long enough, it's also a bit enticing to finally be able to admit the truth of our brokenness. I mean, I think even we understand that's got to be a move towards some kind of freedom in our lives if we could do that. The first step to breaking the chains of slavery, to getting off of the, exhausted, the exhausting treadmill of performance and denial and illusion and those things, it begins here. We'll never understand the good news until we can personally own and admit our human predicament and sinfulness. Okay, second, let's move on to understanding uh, the divine substitution. So, we just talked about pronouns. Now we're going to talk about prepositions. So it's grammar day, uh, South Baton Rouge. Um, but the gospel, 
The good news is in the prepositions. The very heart of Christianity is in the prepositions. Now, before I explain why that is, I I want you to think about something. The Bible begins with this. I mean, I'm talking begins. Genesis 1. It begins with this, um, this amazing assertion about God's power. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1, right? Out of nothing, God made everything there is. And Genesis highlights the effortlessness with which it took God to make everything. How effortless was it for God to make everything there is? God said, let there be light. And there was light. Right? God said, let the waters in the heavens be, under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. On and on it goes. He simply spoke, never lifted a finger, and by the power of His Word, everything came into being. But listen, that's page one. And the thousands of pages of the Bible after that first page are telling you this. Creation was effortless, but redemption wasn't. In other words, God could say, let there be light, and there was light, but God couldn't just say about our human predicament, let there be forgiveness. Why why is that? It is because God is unchangeably holy, and His holy justice has to be satisfied. There is no way around it. And so, the gospel, the good news, is in the prepositions. Remember what prepositions are. Words like for, upon, with, on. And remember earlier verses that we've looked at. The servant, we were told earlier, was marred beyond human semblance. He was disfigured and beaten to a pulp. Why? Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. With His stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. His servant had to come and be a sacrifice for you in your place to satisfy God's holy justice. His wounds, uh, T.R. Burks wrote, each sin of every sinner would be like a separate wound in the heart of this man of sorrows. Yours and mine are very real personal sins of greed and lust and anger and self-centeredness and jealousy. They were put on Him. The preposition... (laughs) The prepositions point us to a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice that came to stand in our place, that came to die for us, be of sacrifice for us. The Old Testament sacrificial system is foreign and mysterious to us. Um, lots of, lots of well-intentioned. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Die in Leviticus um, because it's just so foreign to us. Uh, it's so unusual to us. And Leviticus is the sacrificial system, system's manual for the people of Israel. 
And this, this language of sacrifice uh, and of prepositions, it's a little foreign to our experience, but it wasn't to the people Isaiah wrote to at all. Look, I, mean, I got to cut out a bunch of details, but I want you to think with me just for a moment about the granddaddy of all sacrifices uh, that is described in the book of Leviticus. Uh, it's called the whole burnt offering. See, when you came to the tabernacle uh, to offer your whole burnt offering, you were incredibly and personally involved in that. Right? You took from your herd of livestock the very best which, if you were part of a nomadic tribe, your livestock was your wealth. And it hurt. It cost you something to bring a bull to sacrifice. And it had to be a male. And it had to be a male without blemish. You brought this bull to the tabernacle and the priest had you do something very symbolic. He had you place your hand on the bull. Preposition, right? Your hand on or upon its head. Because that bull was going to become a substitute preposition for you. But here's the thing. The priest wasn't going to do your dirty work for you. I mean, you had to take the knife and slit that animal's throat. That is up close and personal. Can you imagine that struggling with that animal? The trauma of that moment? What kind of sights you would take in? The sounds you would hear? The smells? Every one of your senses assaulted. Right? And when the animal had expired, you had to butcher it into pieces to be arranged on the fire. Entrails had to be cleansed and then burnt. Now look, I love the smell of steaks on fire. It makes me hungry. It makes me hungry just thinking about the smell of steaks on the fire. But fur and hooves and entrail smoking, that is an awful smell. Smell, Pungent. It was so very personal. You were so involved in it. Over and over and over, when this sacrifice is described in Leviticus, there's this interesting repeated refrain. Repeated again and again and again. And it was this. An aroma pleasing to the Lord. Pungent and gross and disturbing to you and me. But pleasing to Him. Why was it pleasing? Why was that smell pleasing to Him? Because it was the smell of substitution. And God loves the smell of substitution. The good news is in the prepositions. A substitute for you. Christmas. Jesus was born to die. He was the perfect male without blemish. He came to be consumed by the fire of God's holy justice for you. But the aroma was pleasing to God, not just because it satisfied His holy justice. But you know why creation was effortless and redemption wasn't? It was because... He wasn't just satisfying His holy justice, but He was also satisfying His holy and perfect and complete love of you. 
and for you. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus came to be crushed for our iniquities. Verse 10, if you look later on, verse 10 tells us that it was the will of the Lord, or better, that it pleased the Lord to crush this servant. At the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He was the ultimate burnt offering, this aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. Because there at the cross, justice and love met and embraced. Right? To understand this news, the divine substitute for you, that changes everything. That will reshape your life. Preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once explained the difference between news and advice from the perspective of the New Testament. And um, I'm just going to paraphrase what he said, but in that day, cities were surrounded by walls, and if your king had gone out into battle against a neighboring nation or something like that, there were watchers on the wall, and they were waiting for messages to come back from the battlefield. So if a messenger came back with advice, it was this. We are losing the battle. Our lines are being pushed back. They're encroaching upon the city. Arm yourselves. Get yourselves ready. And it created a lot of frantic activity, as you might imagine. Time to get ready. But if the messenger returned with news, it was this. Your king has gone out for you and has been victorious in battle for you. Prepare for his arrival. Now that produced a lot of activity too. But it was very, very different. Right, that, the activity produced by advice, it is driven by fear. You better clean up. You better get your life in order. You better, you better make amends for your sins so that you'll be acceptable and lovable and all that kind of stuff. You, better, you need to run and hide and seek and avoid reality. But the activity that's produced by news, it is driven by joy and gratitude. You are accepted because your king has done this for you. You are loved. You are free. And now live out of joy and gratitude. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if He had done everything you have done. So that now God will treat you as if you had done everything that Jesus had done. And He will love you even as He loves His own Son. And if you can embrace that personally, that changes everything. So listen, let's come to our last point, living out our gospel freedom. I'm going to be brief here, limit myself to just two benefits of this sacrifice that Isaiah mentions in these verses. There are more, but these are huge. First, he tells us in verse 5 that upon him was the chastisement that what? That brought us peace. And then second, he tells us that it is with his stripes that we are healed. Okay, so first... Jesus' sacrifice purchased peace for you. You know what this means? It means that because of your your sin, you are at enmity with a holy, holy, holy God that we sang about earlier in the service. You are at war 
with God. But Jesus, the sacrificial servant, He came and He put an end to the hostility. Jesus' sacrifice satisfied God's justice and love for you, and now you are free. You are at peace with God. And that means you can finally be still and you can rest in the silence. The silence no longer has to haunt you if this is true. It no longer has to disturb you or unnerve you if this is true. You can be still and delight in God's delighting in you through Jesus. There's nothing left for you to do to satisfy God's justice. Nothing left for you to do to merit God's love. It has all been done for you. And for those of us who struggle so deeply with shame, we hear this, and I think a lot of times it just it seems too good to be true. But think it through. God's own Son was the sacrificial servant for you. He became sin for you. That you might become the righteousness of God. This sacrificial servant paid it all. And all means all. Period. Everything. No matter who you are, or what you've done, or what's been done to you, or where you've been. This sacrificial servant came to make peace. And He paid it all, and you are free in Him. Two weeks ago, my wife and I got a new mattress. A um, little change of pace here. Um, and uh, that mattress, um, that first morning I woke up, I felt so refreshed. I felt like I hadn't slept for 17 years. I was very tired. Um, that... That mat- the mattress that we had been sleeping on was my wife's mattress when she was growing up. That thing was like 30 years old. Our whole marriage, we slept on that bed and never known what a good night's sleep was. Um, and, um, and I remember thinking, that's what sleep and rest is supposed to feel like. And, and Jeff will tell you this, for, for like six or seven nights in a row, I would get into bed and say, this is awesome. Um, but anyway, it reminded me, I got off track there. It, it reminded me of something, um, I heard a pastor, some Tim Keller, uh, say a, n- a number of times, basically, basically this, that the medical field will often tell us it's not so much the length of sleep, but the depth of sleep that really matters, right? It's achieving REM, um, where the deepest possible rest is found and achieved. But it's not just our bodies that need rest, right? It, our souls are desperate for deep, abiding rest, the deepest rest possible. And to embrace what the sacrificial servant has done for you in making peace, that is to find and enter into rest. For your souls. So first, let me just if you've never known that peace, come to Jesus and rest in what He has done for you. And second, if you're like me and you regularly forget the peace you have, please sit a while in the quiet and meditate on Isaiah 53. Verses 4 through 6. And soak in its truth. 
Jesus came to be the sacrificial servant for you. In Him, it is finished. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Alright, real quick. Isaiah also says, we're healed with the servant's stripes. The Bible tells us the story of good news. Because of Jesus, the sacrificial servant, we have a certain hope for us. Right? We have the hope that one day, someday, Jesus will return and heal all the brokenness of the world and in us fully and finally one day. And that's an incredible promise for God's people. This future hope that we have that, that does radically change the way we deal with the sorrows and losses and hurts of this life. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture speaks about um, the hope of that final and future healing It's Revelation 21. John wrote there that one day, someday, Jesus is going to come and He will come and wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And God's people hold dearly and tightly to that hope in the future. And Because it's Grammar Sunday, that's all future tense. Right? One day, someday. Because of Jesus, everything that is broken will one day fully and finally be healed because of His stripes. But here's the thing. We can talk about that for a while. But um, I think we often forget that the very next verse in Revelation 21 is not in the future tense, but in the present tense. And this is what it says. He who is seated on the throne, that is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's not future tense. That's now. What what is Isaiah saying? What is Jesus saying from his throne? He's saying when you come to this sacrificial servant, when you admit your sin personally and embrace Jesus as the divine substitute, when you drop your defenses and come before him, And submit to Him and what He has done for you and accomplished for you. Not just in the future, but now. Right now. He will begin making all things new. He'll begin to heal you and remake you now. Because that's what this good news does. It changes everything. It has the power to reshape everything about your life. You know what it will really do the more it gets into your heart what the sacrificial servant has done for you? When you grow in a conviction of the depth of His love and sacrifice for you, it will make you new and you will begin turning into the kind of person who begins to love others sacrificially. You'll start giving of your wealth generously. You'll begin to enter into the pain and mess of other people's lives and suffer along with them sacrificially. You begin to be quicker and quicker to show grace the more this sinks into your heart. It'll turn you into the kind of person that begins to care more for others than you care about yourself. Because you're free. You have everything you need in Jesus. And now you can be driven in this life, 
Not by fear and self-protection and all those things. But you can finally be driven in this life by joy and gratitude. Because you are free in Jesus. God will make you new. He'll heal you. And yeah, it's a slow process. But what He's doing is He's going to begin making you more and more like Jesus. So this is my encouragement to you. Please, this Christmas, consider the one who was born to die. The one who came to be a sacrificial servant for you. Let's pray together.